Welcome to Social PR Secrets, the podcast. My name is Lisa Beyer, and I will be your host. Today's guest is David Meerman Scott. He is a best-selling author known for books such as The New Rules of Marketing and PR, which is in several editions in several languages, and he has also written the book Marketing the Moon. His most recent book is called Fanocracy. I highly recommend any of David's books if you're in the public relations and marketing field. In this episode that was originally recorded when I taught my social media management class at the University of Florida, David and I talk about the social media evolution, where it all started, where it's going, and what some of our predictions might be. Enjoy the episode and namaste. Okay, so welcome David Meerman Scott. We are in week one of my social media management class at the University of Florida. And David is our first guest for the week that is themed the social media evolution. How exciting. And uh-huh. Yes. And um, I thought David would be perfect because he um, wrote the New Rules of Marketing and PR, which is a bestseller. Um, and his most re- recent book is Marketing the Moon. And David, I'll let you tell a little bit, of, little bit about um, your most recent book and what you have going on. Sure. Um, Marketing the Moon is this um, crazy book I wrote about the Apollo moon program, which um, I did it with a co-author and the last man to walk on the moon, Gene Cernan, wrote the forward to the book, and you can see it behind Lisa right now. Um, The the book is is about the marketing and public relations aspects of getting us to the moon. I mean, what what my co-author and I realized is that the idea of getting to the lunar surface was more than just a huge technology feat. It also was a feat of marketing and public relations because without it, uh, we never could have um, convinced the American public to um, spend 4% of our national budget for an entire decade and have 2% of our national workforce for an entire decade dedicated to a project to get 12 people to the surface of the moon. It's just incredibly radical. So we looked at the various things that they did, and um, it's just an incredible story of I think it's the most important marketing and public relations case study ever. Uh, all of it, of course, pre-social media, pre-web, pre-internet. Um, it was, uh, you know, well before Mark Zuckerberg was born. <laughs> exactly. So, what can we learn? What lessons can we learn from? I mean, this was pre-social media, yeah. obviously, um, but there was still certain aspects that we're doing today. So, what can social media managers learn from how? Um, we used marketing to put a man on the moon. Well, one of the things that I th- that we found fascinating was that um, we actually put cameras onto the spacecraft. Um, there was live television in the spacecraft. There was live television from the surface of the moon. And that was something that people at NASA, a lot of people at NASA didn't want to have happen. It was something that a lot of the astronauts didn't want to have happen. The reason is because the astronauts didn't want to be, um, feel like they were um, uh, trained actors uh, or television producers. Um, they didn't want to bother with doing television during their important mission. And the NASA um, spacecraft designers didn't want to have television because they didn't want to bring the extra weight. At that time, cameras were very heavy, and it would have meant that they had to uh, remove something else from the spacecraft or change the design in order to bring this heavy camera. 
But fortunately, people like Tom Stafford, who was an astronaut, and Paul Haney, who was a public relations person at NASA, got together and convinced them that it's really important for the public to see live what was going on on the moon. And, and we drew some great parallels to what's happening in social media today, where a lot of people in companies, probably like your students and certainly you and I, argue that social media needs to be a very important part of what's going on in companies. You know, obviously, duh. <laughs> you know, right. companies should be engaged with their customers via Twitter, via Facebook, and whatever other um, uh, ways make sense, YouTube blogs and all that. And so, there's also people who believe that, that, not, that they shouldn't and that it's too difficult and we shouldn't be spending time on what they believe to be this frivolous social media stuff. So it was an incredible parallel. 40, uh, actually 50 years ago was when the arguments were going on around live television on the surface of the moon. 50 years later, we're talking about live social media and companies. It just seems like we're having the same argument all over again. So real-time communications was happening then? Just oh, yeah. Format. Yeah, real-time communications was absolutely happening uh, 45 years ago when we first went to the moon, and real-time communications is happening in smart companies today. So over the past 10 years, we've both seen social media evolve. And so take us back to pre-social media and then, like, for example, your first time using Facebook, first time using Twitter, yeah. and when was your big aha moment of social media? Well, interestingly, um, my experience goes way back to 1983. And I know that sounds nutty, but um, my first job was on a bond trading desk. I worked at Dean Witter in New York City. And on our desks, we had these big, old, clunky, black and white, real-time financial information services that delivered content from companies like Reuters and Dow Jones. And interestingly, they had two-way communications capabilities. It was actually done using video technology. It wasn't even digital. It was video technology. And basically, you would get a private page, and you could update it, the text on it, and it was a, a piece of video. And it's just ancient, clunky technology from look, looked at today. But back then, it was a social network. You could communicate with other people through this technology. And to me, and that was my very first job, and to me, I took that with me through my career, and the idea of real-time communications was something that I experienced through my entire career. I had another job um, soon thereafter where I was Asia Marketing Director for Knight Ritter at the time, one of the largest newspaper companies in the United States. And um, I uh, actually um, was working in Asia. I was in Tokyo and Hong Kong. And my job was to be responsible for the marketing aspects of, our, of the real-time Knight Ritter services. Um, and this is also pre-1995, pre-web. So to me, this stuff is natural. And, right. and um, you know, when when we first started creating real-time content in the form of things like blogs, that would have been uh, and, uh, probably in the uh, 1999, or oh, they weren't called blogs then, 1998 even, things like journaling. Um, and then um, a little bit later, blogging started. A little bit after that, Twitter started. And I was, in, I was involved in all those early. But for most people, um, you know, in 2000, 2001, thinking about blogs and um, 2007, 2008, thinking about something like Twitter, 
Um, it was brand new, radical, weird, different stuff. And uh, to me, fortunately, I wouldn't be talking to you right now if I hadn't had those experiences early in my career. I mean, I'm talking 1983. That's when I graduated from college. That's when I went into my first job. Uh, a, a primitive form of social media back in 1983. So you could actually see you had the vision because you, you had that experience oh, yeah. early on. Oh, yeah. I, I saw a pattern of what I was experiencing early in my career being taken to the mainstream. And I saw it early. I saw it um, uh, as early as 1998, 1999. Uh, so when you first started using Facebook and Twitter, did, um, did did people think you were kind of crazy trying to bring this into the PR fold? Yeah. Oh, no question about it. Yeah, no <laughs> question about it. I mean, in the early days, you know, the powers that be, the um, the associations that we all know and love, um, the, the PR managers and directors and vice presidents and marketing managers, directors, vice presidents, many of them, and, I, and in the early days, all, almost all of them thought that I was nuts and this was just crazy stuff and what are you talking about? It'll, it'll, it'll be the most important form of communications in the future. And um, fortunately, I, I stuck to my guns, and it was hard in the beginning. You know, I'd be delivering presentations at conferences, and people would sit there with their arms folded and look at me like I was nuts. Um, and now, you know, people are looking at me and tapping away on their mobile phones, tweeting as I talk live. It's a, it's a, an amazing transformation in not very many years. Uh, but yeah, it was a hard slog. Um, you know, people really didn't quite get it there. I, I joined Facebook the first week that it was opened for non-students because in the early days, as you probably know, um, Facebook was only for students. And I think they opened, I think it was 06 that they opened it up for non-students or maybe 07, I can't remember, but right around there. And I was on, that was the very first week that I joined Facebook. I joined Twitter um, not very, very, very early, but 2008 early 2008. So it was, um, wasn't the first year of Twitter. I think it was the second year of Twitter. Um, but there was very few people on Twitter at that point. I mean, so few people that my Twitter ID is DM Scott. I mean, you couldn't get, you have to be DM Scott 2816 now. Exactly. And, um, what about LinkedIn and, and Google plus? Um, Google plus I joined the very first day. Um, I got, or actually not the very first day, but the very beginning when they opened it to a closed user group, I got an invitation. Um, LinkedIn, I was late to. Um, I was I only joined LinkedIn two years ago. I was late to LinkedIn because in the beginning, I thought LinkedIn was too spammy. Um, in the very beginning, um, LinkedIn seemed to me, based on the invitations I was getting to join it, that it was uh, only for people looking for jobs. And I didn't want to spend my time helping people find jobs, so I didn't join it until very late. Um, and now I've, it's extremely valuable to me. It's one of my most important social networks. Um, but I think LinkedIn had to grow up, which they have done over the past two years, and become much more than just a tool for people to find jobs. Yeah, I've noticed. I, I totally agree with that. I noticed that um LinkedIn has evolved, and now it's um, offering the published posts. I noticed that you publish. How often do you publish um, on LinkedIn? Usually twice a week I publish a post, and it's been fantastic. I, that's one of the most surprising things that I've experienced. Um, 
in social ne- in social networking probably in the last two years was the power of those posts. I mean, um, that one I hate Google Plus that you that you read. Um, I know because we talked about it. I think it's got like 25 comments, and it's you know it's great. It's a really interesting way to get get the word out. Definitely. So, do you think that? Um, how do you pick? you or what advice would you give a social media manager do you post on your blog or do you post on linkedin publish posts how do you pick? i do both i publish uh on my blog and i publish almost identical content on linkedin one of the reasons that that's possible and that doesn't pose a problem is because linkedin doesn't linkedin posts don't appear in google search or at least not that i've ever seen i don't know if you have so what's so you're not going to be penalized by Google for publishing duplicate posts. Google doesn't like it when it sees identical content appear in two different places. And sometimes you can get a penalty by Google and they'll they'll suppress your content in the search engines if you're publishing in in multiple places. So um so what I do, I publish a blog post on my blog, my personal blog, then I publish simultaneously the same content on LinkedIn. Then I take the first paragraph or two, publish it on Google Plus with a link to the content on my blog, and then I publish the title of the blog post with a link on Twitter. And that's typically how I get the word out about my um, what's, what I'm thinking about. That um, actually brings up a good point. Um, that's interesting how you do that, but... So as week one, we're in social media evolution. We're going to be talking about how um, important it is to also have some sort of an understanding about search engines and yeah, social media. Yeah, search engines are really important. Content. And we're going to have some guests from Bing and from oh, um, Google talking. But just as a social media manager, you know, just you know, you, you touched on it, but just how you at least have to have some understanding of how search works, how social works and optimization. Yeah, they're really important. They, they really fit together like pieces of a puzzle. Um, one of the things about, about social, which is great, is that you can communicate continuously to an audience. But one of the problems with social is that unless somebody shares your content, you're not reaching anybody you don't already know. Um, that the same thing is true with email marketing. You know, if you have an email list with 10,000 people on it, that's great. You reach 10,000 people, but um, you're not going beyond that closed user group. Search, of course, means that you're reaching people you don't yet know. The same thing is true as when people share your content. You know, someone retweets it. Someone um, uh, gives you a plus on Google+, Plus. you know, things like that. Um, so it is very important to understand how the ecosystem works of who already is subscribing in some way, either because they follow you on Twitter or they um, subscribe to your email list or whatever it might be, subscribe to your blog, check out your RSS feed, whatever it might be, versus who shares your stuff and how do you find content because, say, Lisa shared my blog post or my LinkedIn update, and then how do um, people find you when they are searching for something in the, the search engines? All very important parts of the ecosystem to understand. Okay, awesome. So one other thing I wanted to touch on is you package the term newsjacking pretty well because you have a book <laughs> yeah. on it. 
Uh, it didn't. So it didn't this... exist before I talked about it. The word exists. So did you coin the word? I did I wanted not. To say you I did not okay. coin the word. The word had already been used, but when I when I ran across the word, and I honestly can't remember where I ran across it. When I saw that word, I'm like, oh my god, what a fantastic <laughs> word! I'm like, I knew exactly what it meant. I had been doing it for for a decade. You know, I'd been practicing the art and science of injecting my ideas into a breaking news story, which is my definition of newsjacking. I've been doing it for a decade. And I realized that this was a fantastic word for something I had been doing. And, you know, believe it or not, when I saw that word, within 10 seconds, I knew I had a book in my, I knew I was going to write a book on it. I just knew. I knew yeah, I knew. Yeah. I knew. Yeah. So I did a Google search to see who was talking about newsjacking. At the time I did the, new, the Google search, which would have been about maybe six months before the book came out, there were less than 200 um, search results for the word newsjacking. Um, so that, that sort of shows how many people um, were talking about this concept of newsjacking, which is almost nobody. I mean, 200 hits on Google is nothing. Um, and then I'm just doing a search right now just for fun. 97,000 now. So what's interesting to me about that is single-handedly, one person, me, can popularize an idea. And, and anybody listening to this, you, any of, any of, anybody else, that's true of all of us. You know, to be able to come up with a concept, get it out into the marketplace, and then become known for it is absolutely, totally possible for anybody using the tools of social media. And I, I love the fact that Newsjacking had 200 hits before I talked about it and has over, almost 100,000 hits now. I love the fact that every single day in my Google Alerts, I get people... I get an alert every day. I get an alert about newsjacking every day. I get people who are tweeting about newsjacking. Most of them have never heard of my book, but it's a concept that's now into the marketplace. And to me, that's an amazing thing. You couldn't do that 10 years ago. You couldn't do that 20 years ago um, for free. Get, get a concept like that out there. I actually get paid to get the concept out there because people buy my book. I mean, it's just really a pretty <laughs> remarkable thing. Yeah. So, I totally agree. And from a social media management standpoint, now these are social media managers um, taking this class that have declared public relations as their major. Yeah. So PR is, is factoring in. So what advice do you give a social media manager when it comes to some maybe some do's and definite don'ts when it comes to newsjacking? Um, yeah, so newsjacking, um, the art and science of injecting your ideas into a breaking news story. The main thing is to be quick. You know, back in the day, there was a concept of newsjacking, although no one called it that, but, you know, that you would hang your story on a current event or something happening in the news. But there was no easy way to get it out instantly and in real time because we didn't have that capability. So basically what the basic concept and the easiest way to de describe the concept is something happens in the news. So, for example, if you watch the World Cup, 
um, that player from Uruguay bites the other player. You know, what, what, what's going on with that? And the whole world's talking about the World Cup and this guy bit somebody else and it's blowing up over social media. Well, that gives anybody an opportunity to play off of that by writing a blog post or by doing a tweet or by doing a video or whatever it might be. And a bunch of companies did, and it was great, and it worked out fantastically. So it's all what's really, really important is speed. You have to be quick. You have to do it right now. You cannot wait till tomorrow. You probably can't even wait a couple of hours. You've got to get it done really, really quickly. A blog is a great way to do it because that will be indexed by the search engines. You can do something on Twitter, particularly if there's a hashtag out there that you can grab. Uh, a little bit um, less sort of globally, um, if you know about a conference that's going on, even if you're not physically there and you know the hashtag, you can use that to um, artfully put your ideas into, um, the, into what people are talking about. Um, some don'ts. Um, never newsjack uh, anything that ha- that's related to death and destruction. Be very, very careful about religious sec- religion, sex, and politics. Uh, unless you have a tie to death, destruction, religion, sex, or politics, I would avoid all of them. And this idea that I mentioned about, you know, using newsjacking around a hashtag, only do that if it's appropriate. You have to be adding value. Don't be seen as spamming a hashtag. Um, You know, one of the ways that I've used it is if I find out that somebody is talking about newsjacking at a, at a conference, and that happens sometimes. It might hit my Google Alerts that there's a, somebody who's speaking about newsjacking at a conference. That's cool. I don't own the topic. Um, I popularized it, but I don't own it. So I'm thrilled that someone else wants to talk about it. I'll figure out when the um, newsjack is going to be at the conference, uh, figure out what time based on – I'm on East Coast time – what time it's based on me. Let's say it starts 10 o'clock Central time because it's a Chicago conference. That's 11 o'clock my time on the East Coast. I'll wait till the um, that session is halfway through, and I'll send a, I'll tweet and say, um, here's a link to a blog post I did about newsjacking using the hashtag of the conference. And people say, holy shit, you know, the, the, the author of the book Newsjacking just newsjacked the freaking newsjacking <laughs> session at this conference. How cool is that, right? Um, uh, but and, and that's something that would be seen as appropriate, but, you know, you don't want to newsjack something uh, in this way where people think you're trying to spam them. Okay, got it. Well, we're almost at the point where we're going to lose our students' attention span. Uh, so just on that, on that final note, let me just ask you a couple things. Um, so do, any final words of wisdom that you have to our future social media managers out there? Yeah, a couple, two things. Number one is um, don't, tr- don't work at a company that doesn't get this unless you, unless you really feel like you want to be a pioneer. I've, totally I've, agree. I've coached a lot of students. I've, I've spoken in a, a number of universities and colleges, and um, I tell students, please, please, when you, if you're asked to go to an interview, great, good for you, go to the interview. At some point when it's appropriate, Ask the person who's interviewing you and make sure it's appropriate. It might be the second interview, but, you know, don't don't be silly about it. But say to them, can I use social media at work? Uh, And if the answer is no, you can't use Twitter or Facebook here on the job. By the way, 25 percent of companies block employees from using social media. um, Then I would tell you to stand up and walk away. And that's not a job you're going to want. However, if you do end up for some strange reason in a company that does not allow employees to 
communicate through, through social media, you have three choices. Number one, you can just collect your paycheck and, and, and just have a job for the rest of your life. And, uh, you know, how boring is that? Number two, you can become an agent of change, which is really hard, really difficult, and really risky with a potential huge payoff if you can be the, the person in the organization that educates everyone around social networking and you show the value on you'll get promoted into bigger bigger jobs no no question about it but you also risk getting fired which happened to me by the way I was fired for doing this kind of stuff and the last company I worked for back in 2002 um, and the third thing that you could do is um, is you could find a new job um, and I recommend you don't um, you, you just be very careful uh, about what you're doing um, around companies that don't appreciate this idea of social media. You really need to decide whether you want to be an agent of change or not. My third, my second idea and suggestion for all of you is have fun. This stuff's fun. This is great. Yes. I mean, this is not like the old days of marketing where you're, oh, my God, I've got to make a brochure. I mean, how freaking boring is that? Make a brochure. <laughs> That's what I did 20 years ago. This is great. This is fun. This is exciting. And if you don't like it, you need to figure out what you really want to do with your life because most people I know who do a good job with this stuff love it. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I get to go to work again and do social media and all this. So um, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Okay, David, on behalf of University of Florida College of Journalism, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Lisa, and good luck to all of you in your studies and career. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social PR Secrets. If you like what you heard, check out the book on Amazon or follow our blog at socialprsecrets.com. This episode was sponsored by The Buyer Group, a social PR agency striving to keep our balance in the digital world, practicing public relations, social media, and search marketing, while occasionally drinking a glass of wine or two for the best creativity and results. Thank you all for tuning in. If you would like to get a free chapter of Social PR Secrets, go to socialprsecrets.com slash free.